80, <coughs> Psalm 80. And while you are turning there, let me mention that I see that Michelle Cusa, our PhD student from uh, University of North Texas, stand up, Michelle, so everybody knows who you knows who you are. Remember Michelle? Yeah. Yeah. She just came back from Australia, and where she was working in a hospital, a children's hospital. You know, she's majoring in, um, I guess, children's psychology. Is that what you're going to call it? Uh, psychology, but maybe directing it toward children's psychology. Okay, so now let's uh, look at Psalm 80, and I'm going to characterize this psalm as a prayer for restoration. Okay, so that's how we're going to de designate the psalm. It's a prayer for restoration. It was probably written during the reign of King Hezekiah. You've heard that name, Hezekiah. He reigned in Judah from 715 to 686 B.C. Okay, 715 to 686 B.C. Those dates are very important for our study. Remember that after King Saul, King David, and King Solomon passed by the scene, uh, in time, the promised land, God's people were divided in half between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You remember that? There were ten tribes that identified with the northern kingdom and two identified with the southern kingdom. So, King Hezekiah in 715 B.C., becomes the king of the southern kingdom, called Judah. Okay, you still with me on that? This date uh, provides us with a clue into understanding the psalm. Because only seven years before Hezekiah took the throne in the south, Assyria invaded the northern kingdom and defeated it. Just wiped it off the face of the map. And somehow, the southern kingdom was spared. They didn't know if they would be spared. It was a serious intention to come down and destroy the southern kingdom as well, but they got diverted. And so, this psalm is being written during that period of time. And there's a question in the psalmist's mind, is will the southern kingdom be next? You know, what's going to happen to us? So this leads the psalmist uh, to do two things. Number one, you're going to see in this psalm, he prays to God that the southern kingdom will be spared. That's number one. Okay? And number two, he grieves or laments over the defeat of the northern kingdom. Two things. Prays that the southern kingdom will be spared and grieves or laments over the defeat of the northern kingdom. So that's what this is all about. And you're going to see how it all fits together when we get to the end. So let me give you the outline of our study. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to call this a plea for deliverance. A plea for deliverance. Verses 4 through 7, a lamentation or a grievance over the defeat of the northern kingdom. That's 4 through 7. And then verses 8 through 19, recollections of the past recollections of the past. Three sections, each one of these sections ends with a refrain or a chorus. 
Okay, so let me show you that. Section 1 ends in verse 3. Notice the words. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Section 2 ends at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we will be saved. And the last section ends at verse 19. Restore us, Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Three simple sections, each one ending in a chorus or a refrain. Notice, however, that the refrain expands each time. You see? In verse 3, restore us, O God. Look at verse 7. Restore us, O God, what? Of hosts. You see that? And then verse 19, restore us, O Lord, O God of hosts. Each one expands. Okay, so you with me? That's how we're laying it out? Now let's go down verse by verse. Let's look at the plea for deliverance. Okay, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Jacob like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Now I want you to notice in those two verses, I want you to notice the key verbs. Okay? This is how you study a psalm. You're looking for the key verbs here. So the first verb is, look, give, give ear. That means listen up and pay attention to this prayer, will you? Okay. Look at the second key verb at the end of verse 1. Shine forth. In other words, demonstrate your glory. You know, Let us see your presence. Look at the third key, verse, uh, key verb in verse 2. Stir up. Stir up your strength. Manifest your power. Uh, come to our aid, in other words, as far as and use your power. Manifest your power. And then the fourth key verb is at the end of verse 2. Come and save. In other words, intervene and deliver us. Okay, those are the verbs. Okay. Now I want you to notice, in these first two verses, how God is described. Look in verse 1. He's described as the shepherd of Israel. Now that's a metaphor. God doesn't re isn't really a shepherd, is he? But he's like a shepherd. That's a metaphor. He's described as a shepherd. He is described as the shepherd of what? Of whom? Israel. That's the northern kingdom. He was the shepherd of the northern kingdom. Look what else it says there. You who led Joseph like a flock. Joseph represents the northern kingdom. God was like a shepherd that led the northern kingdom. Strange leading, huh? He led them right into defeat. How would you like that kind of a shepherd? What does a shepherd usually do? Protects the flock. What does he do with this flock? He leads them to disaster. What kind of a shepherd is this? Now look how else he's described in verse 1. He's described as you who dwell between the cherubim. Now, we know that in the temple uh, and in the tabernacle, God dwelt on between the, the wings of the cherubim. And God's presence was there. That was in the earthly temple. But the earthly temple was patterned after the temple in heaven, a heavenly temple. And remember, Isaiah said, I was high and lifted up, and I saw the Lord, and his, fame, his train filled the temple. 
And here's God here. He's being protected by these cherubim. Remember that? One cherubim looking that way, one cherubim looking that way, and here's God's throne right between them. So we don't know whether he's describing God's presence on earth or God's presence in heaven. My guess is his presence in heaven, but I'm not sure of that. Okay? But that's how he's described. He is, if he dwells in heaven, that could be one option. If he dwells between the cherubim on earth, that would be in down in Jerusalem. So that's, that's just possible. Now look, look at the context of the, the verb stir up in verse 2. See where it says stir up your strength? But look at the context. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your strength. What in the world does that mean? Before, in front of, who are they? Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. These are three tribes that followed immediately behind the Ark of the Covenant as it was being carried through the wilderness. The first, the three tribes right behind them were Ephraim, Benjamin, and what's the other one? Manasseh. When it came time for God's people to divide between north and south, Ephraim and Manasseh chose to side with the north. Benjamin chose to side with the south. And so Benjamin, when the great invasion came by the Assyrians, the tribe of Benjamin was spared because it was part of the southern kingdom. The other two, well, they got decimated. Now, what is the prayer here? The prayer is what? Stir up your strength before these guys. So he is asking God to come to the aid of the northern kingdom. Don't let everybody die. Somehow, Lord, in the future, what I'm asking you to do is bring the tw ten tribes of the north back into their land and stir up your strength before Benjamin, who sided with the south. That means, and rescue us. Help us from not getting invaded by the Assyrians. So that is the prayer. That's the plea for deliverance. And then you have the refrain. Verse 3. Restore us, O God. That means, and notice the us. The us would be what? Manasseh, Benjamin, and Ephraim would be restore. Restore. Bring us back together as a one people, no longer divided. Restore us. See, restore us, O God, verse 3. Cause your face to shine. Does that remind you of anything? What did the high priest say in number 6? The Lord bless thee. And make his face what? Shine upon you. That means show us favor. Show your people favor, God. And then look what else it says in verse 3. And... If you do that, here's the result. We shall be saved or delivered. So there's the plea for deliverance, section one. You ready for section two? The lamentation over the defeat of the northern kingdom. Verse four. O Lord God of hosts, which means angelic armies, he has a host of angels who are at his disposal. How long will you be angry against 
the prayer of your people? How long will you be angry against the prayer or the request of your people? Now, um, I want you to imagine that your children, or your child, came to you with a request. And it's a desperate request. Maybe they're being bullied. Maybe they come home beat up. Their lunch money gone. And the kid says, Daddy, help me. And you were angry at that request. What would make you angry at the request, a desperate request of your child? Could anything make you angry at the request? Well, I know my kids ask me for things I got angry. Maybe they would even get beat up. I would I could see getting angry. I could say, well, I told you not to go that way. Every time you go that way, you get beat up. Why did you, did you, which way did you, oh, went that way down. No. Yeah, I get angry at that. That would make sense. See? So they don't think that God can't get angry at the request of his people. And God's angry. I'm sure the people of the north prayed for God and for his fell off of that. Prayed for God for deliverance. But he didn't answer them. He was angry with them. What would make God angry at them asking for God to spare them from Assyria? Because they didn't obey God. They broke God's law over and over and over and over again. And they fell into idolatry. And they didn't give God any thought. But of course, when they got in trouble, guess what they did? So God was angry over the prayer of his people. And he says in verse 4, O Lord of hosts, how long, shows that he is already, how long will you be angry? How long will you stay angry against the prayer of your people? Okay, look at verse 5. You have fed them. Notice, being written from the south's perspective, he's talking about the north. You fed them up there in the north with bread of tears, and you have given them tears to drink in great measure. Notice that the psalmist blames God for the things that are going on up there. You have given them bread for tears. You have given them drink in great measure. He blames God. It's God's doing. God's the one that allowed this to happen. God has given them a steady diet. Instead of coming to the rescue, restoring them and blessing them, He has given them a steady diet for meat and drink, tears. He's responsible for their suffering. He's responsible for their sorrow. Uh, notice the... Uh, the adjective there. Great measure. You've given them drink in great measure. Tears to drink in great measure. Uh, God, they just didn't have a tear that falls down. Like you saw, remember that iconic picture of the American Indian? With one tear falling down his face? That wasn't the kind of tears these people had. God gave them a big gulp. 7-Eleven, yeah, big gulp when it comes to tears. I mean, they were choking. They, they had so much tears that, you know, that was their steady diet. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. You have made us, meaning God's people, and this would even be Judah now, the southern kingdom, strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. 
you have caused us to be at contention with our enemies. And they are laughing at us. We have become the laughing stock of our neighbors. They're just waiting for Assyria to come down and, and wipe us out too. And they're laughing. It used to be, you know, when King David was in charge, the neighbors stood in amazement of God. God would come and intervene and they, the neighbors would go, <gasps> but no longer is Israel's God in amazement. Now he's in amusement. Israel and Judah have become a laughing stock to their neighbors. They say, ah, you believe in God? He doesn't even answer your prayers. Our God answers our prayers. So that's the lamentation over the situation. You have your refrain in verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine. Show us favor. And if you do that, then we will be delivered. That's the refrain. There's three refrains or choruses. Now remember, psalms were meant to be sung. They were sung. Well, some psalms are still sung in some Scotch Presbyterian churches. They sing straight out of the Bible. They sing psalms. And this would be a chorus. So you could just imagine, you know, when Israel gathers to worship, the choir sings verses 1 and 2, and then all the people come in and they sing the chorus. And then the choir sings verses 5 and 6, and then everybody joins in on the chorus. You know, you hear songs on the radio, you don't know really the lyrics of the song, but you know what? You know the chorus, and you always join in. And that's what you have probably happening here. Now we come to the last section called Recollections. Still with me? Okay? And here, these recollections all deal with past events. So, look at verse 8. You brought, the psalmist says, God, you brought a vine out of Egypt, and you cast out the nations, and you planted it. You planted the vine. Uh... Here he is using a metaphor, and he likens Israel to a vine. And he's describing the exodus. You brought Israel, or the vine, out of Egypt. And the reason he's using a vine, you see in this next sentence in verse 8, you cast out the nations, meaning out of the promised land, and you planted Israel, the vine, right there in the promised land. Israel is called a vine many times in the Old Testament. And this language is very similar to Isaiah chapter 5. And then look what he says about it. You prepared room for the vine, for it. You caused it, the vine, or Israel, to take deep root. And it filled the land. See that? It filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow. The mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea, that would be the Mediterranean Sea, and her branches to the river, which would be the Euphrates River. So in other words, he is describing a past event, recollecting when Israel took, took possession of the Promised Land, and in time, its people and its power and authority spread from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. This these are the dimensions of the promised land that God lays down in Deuteronomy chapter 11. He says, these will be the borders of the promised land from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. And we know that under 
King David, Israel possessed all of this land. See, when Israel went to the promised land, it didn't possess all the land. It had enemies still in the land that had to be put out. But under King David, they possessed all this land. And this became known as the Golden Age. It was an age of prosperity and an age of power. So he thinks about that time under this golden age when King David ruled. Now he asks a question, verse 12. Why have you broken down their hedges? Hedges are what protects you. So that all who pass by pluck her fruit. And when the invaders came into the north, they just took the spoils of battle. It was like plucking fruit. The boar, verse 13, out of the woods, uproots it. And the wild beast, all descriptions of Assyria, of the field, devours it. So he's, he's just describing how that's happening. And even now in the southern kingdom, it can hardly defend itself. Its neighbors are always in fights with their neighbors. And he's saying, we have real problems right now. So then he issues his prayer in this third section. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Oh, that means looks like God has left them, doesn't it? Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven. So he's no longer there in the middle of the tabernacle on earth. He has gone up. Look down from heaven and see. Visit us. Intervene. Visit this vine. And the vineyard which your right hand has planted. And the branch that you made strong for yourself. So he tells them to look down and visit, which means intervene. This is the prayer. We need you to intervene. Intervene on behalf of the north. Intervene on behalf of the south. And look at verse 16. And the, I think here he's describing about the north. He says it's burned with fire. It's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. See that? They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Now some people believe this is the enemy that's being... Uh, who perishes when the prayer is answered, could be. But I think he's probably describing about the vine, how uh, it perished because of the rebuke of your countenance. What is the rebuke of your countenance? So, that's a little different than verse 7. Let your face shine. When God smiles at you, then you're in pretty good shape. But in verse 16, when his countenance is a rebuke, when he looks at you like this, you're in trouble, right? So he says that it burned, it is burned with fire, it's cut down, and they perish because, Lord, you were behind this. It was, it was you rebuking them. You looked upon them in a negative way. And now he offers a possible solution. The psalmist does. So here's what he says. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. Now what in the world does that mean? Now remember, this is written in 700 B.C. In 700 B.C., who was the man of God's right hand? Here's what I want you to do, Lord. Here's the solution. Here's how you can deliver us. Let your hand be on the hand of the man of your right hand. Okay? Who is the man of his right hand? Well, we have two options here. Maybe you have this in the footnote of your Bible. 
Benjamin's name means the son of the right hand. So it could be, it could mean, Lord, put your hand on Benjamin, who represents the southern kingdom. Spare us, Lord, you be for the southern kingdom. Deliver us. So it could mean that. Okay? Or, in 700 B.C., it could refer to King Hezekiah. Put your hand on the man of the right hand, which would be the king. The king was God's right-hand man on earth. We know this from all different psalms. The king is called God's right-hand man. He has the place of God's. He, he is God's authority on earth. So it could represent the king. In the original writing, when it was written in 700. Now by the second century B.C., okay, when Antiochus Epiphanes was ruling, in Israel. And Israel was under the weight again of an enemy force. Uh, the rabbis at that time said that this son of right hand was a person that God was going to bring forth to deliver his people a promised Messiah. So that's how this was being applied and uh, interpreted by the second century B.C. By New Testament times, when the church read these verses, who did they say it represents? Jesus Christ, the man at God's right hand. He ascended on high and he sits down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Originally, it meant Benjamin, representing the southern kingdom, or King Hezekiah. But in time, we saw that it had a dual meaning. It had a prophetic meaning. And most likely, it represents Jesus Christ. Also, you see... In verse 17, he says, Let your hand be upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. And this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. He called himself the Son of Man. So this psalm has prophetic meaning. <coughs> but anyway, when it was written originally, I'm sure the psalmist was asking God to put his hand on the southern kingdom and the king, King Hezekiah. Still there? Okay, now look. Verse 18. If you do that, he says, then we will not, if you do that, then we will not turn back from you. If you do that, if you put your hand on the king, let's say, then we will not turn back from you. Which means that they have turned back from him. Right? They're, they're just struggling along. And then look what it says. Verse 18. Revive us. Revive us. And we will call upon your name. So they're asking God to intervene and revive them, and they will call upon his name. And then you have the refrain. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we will be delivered. Now, that's the song. I believe it was answered. It was answered in the day that the days that the psalm was written. Because under King Hezekiah, revival did break out. The very thing that he asked for happened. Revival broke out, and Judah was spared from being invaded by the Assyrian Empire. And I want to show you this, and this is how we're going to close. 
I want you to go to Second Chronicles. Okay, Second Chronicles, and you'll get past the first five books of the Bible, and then you'll get start getting into Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, and you go to Second Chronicles and chapter twenty-nine. You're going to see a lot of the same language in these passages that you just saw in Psalm eight. Okay. And I'm going to read, not going to make much comment, and this is where we will conclude. Okay? Second Chronicles, chapter 29. Second Chronicles, chapter 29. Now look at verse 1. Second Chronicles 29.1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He didn't follow those other kings. as He didn't look to them as an example. He followed the example of King David. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them because it had just been left gone. You go, go, to, you know, go down the drain. Then he brought in the priests of the Levites, and he gathered them in the east square, and he said, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Even the holy place had been desecrated. That's why God wasn't living there anymore. They had desecrated it. For our fathers have trespassed, and they've done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They've turned their faces away from, dwell from the dwelling place of the Lord. They've turned their backs on him. That's why the psalm says, turn us back. See? They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, have not burned incense, which represented prayer, offered burnt offerings, which was sacrifices in the holy place of the Lord God, of God of Israel. Therefore, look at this, therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and upon Jerusalem. And he's given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering. There's there's neighbors making an amusement, mocking, as you see with your own eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, God of Israel, so that, in order that, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. You see that? So, here is Hezekiah making a covenant with the Lord. Now look at chapter 30 in verse 1. And you can fill in the blanks when you get home and read the rest of these chapters. I think you'll have a lot of fun doing that. But look at verse 30 and verse 1. Chapter 30 and verse 1. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel, that's the northern kingdom, the few people who were left, and Judah, and he also wrote letters to who? Ephraim and Manasseh. You see that? That they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem and keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. You know, we need to stop being divided. We need to get together, those of you who are left up there, and we need to have a Passover. Let me tell you something. In my book on subversive meals, I do a whole history of the Passover in Israel. Israel had not been selling the, celebrating the Passover year after year. They just didn't do any Passover. The one thing that God said you must do after the Exodus is have a Passover and remember this Exodus as long as you exist. They didn't do it. 
It's not until Hezekiah comes that they start celebrating the Passover again. So this man is a man who you know, has put his faith in God. Look down at verse 20. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. You see that? The Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now look over at chapter 31 and verse 20. 31, 20. And Hezekiah did throughout all of Judah and did what was good and right and true before the Lord God. In every work that he began in the service of the house of the Lord, in the law and in the commandments, to seek God, he did it with all of his heart, and so he prospered. Okay. Now look at chapter 32 and look at verse 20. Now because this Hezekiah and prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed, they prayed, and cried out to heaven, then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of warrior, while valor, leader, and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. God defeats the Assyrian army. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. And thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of the others, and guided them on every hand. And many brought gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem, and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Psalm 80 is the prayer. 2 Chronicles 30 through 32 is the answer to the prayer. God answered the prayer of the psalmist. Next week, Psalm 81. Pray. Lord, we thank you that we can uh, see how you will intervene if we humble ourselves. We repent. We cry out in sincerity, not just to be delivered, but to be delivered from our sins as well as from our enemies. Oh, Lord, help us to learn this lesson. Help us to have hearts toward you. We ask, Lord, that you put your hand on the hand of the man at your right side, the Son of Man. May his prayers and his intercessions for us, the church, be answered even in this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.